Good evening, everybody. One of the things that I really um, love about the Dharma, I mean, it's much like a gem if you think of all the different facets, if it's cut in a certain way. But it doesn't matter which one you enter. All of the truths and beauty of the Dharma are revealed. It doesn't matter if you're looking at the Four Noble Truths. It doesn't matter if you're looking at impermanence. It doesn't matter if you're looking at the Five Daily Recollections, whatever, whatever it is. And so tonight I want to enter the facet, this jewel, the Dharma, through the facet of bridging separation. Bridging all the felt separations that you might feel and experience internally and externally. You know, when we think of separation on the, on the most basic level, separation is completely natural. It's evolution. <clears throat> you know, out of the vast, undifferentiated cosmic soup, eventually a cell was formed. You know, that thin, porous membrane precipitated a dividing off. And maybe that sparked the original sense of separation, just that arising of a cell. And with that arising of that membrane on the cell, there began a kind of fading of the memory of that cell, that it was once part of this great undifferentiated cosmic soup. At least that's my my premise. It's faded. That kind of memory is kind of faded into the subconscious. It's still there. And so, as organisms became more and more complex, resulted in you, the Homo sapien, all right? And your ancestors formed together in tribes and clans, and your tribe or clan struggled with other tribes and clans, each trying for their survival. And so the stage was set for us versus them. And sadly, in addition to all this homo sapiens squabbling back and forth between tribes and clans, uh, our ancestors began to lose that, that, that intimate connection with their environment. The environment became a them. It got buried. That, that connection got buried under those powerful survival uh, energies that I spoke about the other night and that we feel every day of our lives. They drove our kinfolk to exploit nature with hardly any regard whatsoever for the health of the biosphere that sustains us all. Those energies are very powerful. So fast forward to today, you know. We're a species that hasn't quite matured enough psychologically or spiritually to uh, 
to find ways of living in harmony. I mean, we might be actually doing a better job of it, but we're not quite there yet. We're still kind of like in our adolescent period as a species. Our hearts and brains are not fully formed. Now, modern research tells us that a, that a young person's brain isn't fully formed until they're around 25. You know? So we've been around for about 4 million years. Maybe it's going to take another couple million years for us to get there. So we're acting in all kinds of irrational ways, like adolescents, and we're driven by forces that we're not even hardly awake to. You know, it's that reactive kind of energetic that's happening below Jonathan's circle. You know, we have the, all this reactive activity happening below that. We're not even awake to it most of the time. And then with the mental construction that, that I'm a separate self, a separate individual firmly, you know, with that firmly embedded in us, there's that ongoing sense of competition with others. There's a sense of needing to defend and protect this separate embattled self. And it's not a great leap to see how these constructs and tendencies that, we're, that we witness playing out inside us as we sit here and practice, how they play out collectively. You know, pitting one person against another, pitting one skin color against another, one ethnicity against another, one religion against another, one economic class against another, one gender against another, one sexual orientation against another, on and on. A poem. Your first thought when the light snaps on and the black wings clatter about the kitchen is a bat. The clear part of your mind considers rabies. The other part does not consider, knows only to startle and cower away from the slap of its wings, though it is soon clearly not a bat, but a moth and harmless. Still, you are shy of it. It clings to the hood of the stove, not black but brown. Its orange eyes sparkle like televisions. Its leg joints are large enough to count. How could you kill it? Where would you hide the body? A creature so solid must have room for a soul. And if this is so, why not a creature half its size? or half its size again, and so on down to the ants. Clearly, it must be saved. Caught in a shopping bag and rushed to the front door, afraid to crush it, feeling the plastic rattle, loosened into the night air, it batters the porch light, throwing fitful shadows around the landing. That was really a big moth, is all you can say to the doorman, who, is, who has watched your whole performance with a smile. The half-compassion and half-horror we feel for the creatures we want not to hurt and prefer not to touch. Half-compassion and half-horror we feel for the creatures we want not to hurt and prefer not to touch. So in this poem, the author begins to 
First, he's experiencing fear. Fear of the other. The line, the clear part of your mind considers rabies. The other part does not consider. Knows only to startle and cower away from the slap of its wings. Then the author experiences a shift. A kind of a transformation begins to take hold. He gets it that it's a harmless moth. But he's still a little afraid of it. He's shy of it. And finally, his natural compassion overrides both the fear and the shyness. And he, and he in a way, he honors and connects with this little life form. And then he spontaneously acts out that compassion and liberates it. For a moment, that's an awakened heart-mind. <clears throat> a crossing of the divide, a bridging of the separation. Now, we've all got that capacity within us. <clears throat> How to access it regularly and enhance it is the question. Now, as homo sapiens in our adolescent period, we're in process. Uh, a bit frail, a bit insecure, somewhat ignorant, but we're in process nonetheless. On August 12th, um, in Charlottesville, I walked from an early morning um, peaceful protest in a park nearby the, the main park. We had a gathering, a lot of like-minded people. And I walked over to Emancipation Park, formerly called Lee Park. And I walked over there because, really, I just couldn't stay away. Some number north of a 1,000 white supremacists, Nazis, Klan members, whatever group they were from, were in this little one-acre park. And they were gathering there to protest the, the upcoming removal of the Lee statue. And I was part of the local clergy group, and we, we had been preparing for this event for a couple of months. We had put together various trainings and teachings to help people, you know, to educate and prepare them for whatever way they wanted to participate in this day. And the fighting hadn't, hadn't started yet. It was only just a little after 10 in the morning when I walked over there. Actually, the permit wasn't even supposed to go into effect until noon. But already the park was filled with, with uh, protesters. And so as, as I approached the park, in the middle of the intersection were these four guys all facing, you know, had, they all had their backs to each other so they could look in the intersection. They were militia uh, people. And they were heavily armed and armored. They had semi-automatic weapons, sidearms, Kevlar vests, bulletproof helmets. They had camo uniforms with patches of their militia. And as I found out in talking with them, they're actually from Western Maryland, this group. So I walked up and initiated a conversation with them. You know, gee, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what, what is your role today, you know? And then with a smile, I said, I couldn't help but notice that, that you're all tricked out with equipment that's better than what the police have, you know? 
And they laughed and they said, you know, their role was to, to um, help enforce um, free speech, you know, for the, for the protesters. And they explained how their, part of it was their intimidation factor, you know, and that, that, that was hoping, they were hoping that would keep the peace. So we had this relaxed conversation for a while, and um, I was careful not to come on with, with antagonism or judgment, but I was genuinely curious. You know. So I'd use a little humor, that comes easy to me, and the you know, and we, we had some commonalities of view over these, it was probably less than 10 minutes, five to 10 minutes we were standing there talking. They understood that I was a counter-protester and I understood their stated intention for being there. Um, and uh, it ended with each of us authentically well-wishing the safety of each other because we knew what was going to happen. It was building, and it was obvious, and it was all around us. So I walked from that militia post, so to speak, and there were a number of those militia people around, but on that particular corner, and it was just like 30 feet from there I could walk up into Emancipation Park. And around the park was a flimsy aluminum railing that, that denoted the permitted place where they could have their rally. So I walked up to that and I looked looked you know over this over the sea of it. I wanted to I wanted to bear witness to the energy that was building there. I mean it was a crescendo of hatred that was happening. You know. I mean, the, the, the racist, anti-Semitic, the homophobic, the Nazi chants, it was bone-chilling. And I was both afraid and transfixed. Yeah. So I stood directly in front of the barricade, and in three feet from me, just slightly out of spittle range from their chanting, uh, they had their shields and their clubs, and they were lined up, and they had their helmets, and jackboots and sidearms, and they were chanting and beating in unison on their, on their uh, shields, kind of like if you've seen any of these recent movies on for the Vikings before they went into battle. So I'm looking over this sea of mostly young men. Of course, at my age, <laughs> it's mostly young men that I see wherever I look. Um, so... Um, but I was just feeling the energy, taking it in. And I just stood there motionless. I was feeling my body. It wasn't a time to try to engage with any of these people. They were working themselves up. But I started, the, the fear started dissipating. And I was just kind of standing there, kind of feeling this is some kind of moment in history and contemplating, well, how could this all, how can this all come to be? What were the causes and conditions that of the lives of these uh, young men that brought them to this moment of such explosive hatred? What were those causes and conditions? Yeah. What abuse had they suffered to have their hearts closed so? 
Or what sinister manipulation of the leaders had taken hold of their hearts and minds? And what needs were being met by the affinity that they were feeling together? It's in a tribal thing. They all had different flags. I couldn't even recognize them all for different groups. Tribal, familial, what needs were being met? And what cultural institutions have we created in this country to give rise to this? And how far back to the roots of of this particular moment, how how far back did they extend? So I'm standing there and feeling like maybe this is like the, the whole of human history is like playing out right here. You know, just captured in that moment in our little formerly peaceful Charlottesville. So we're talking about bridging separation tonight here. That's the intent of this talk. But that was about the widest separation that I think maybe I've ever felt standing there. Because in front of me, there's such hatred for Jews, people of color, migrants, LGBT folks. Who knows what else they were hating, but there was a lot of hate. And behind me in the, in the street, on Market Street, assembling were the counter-protesters. Black Lives Matter folks, Antifa, anarchists, the radical LGBT groups. You know, there's, and, and that was behind me. And at this weird moment, I felt a connection really to both groups. I had... I had some empathy for the fear and confusion of these young men in the park. Most of them were, you know, of course, from lower socioeconomic caste. But that's actually where I came from. Uneducated parents, fourth grade educations, etc. These people, I imagine them to have poor education, probably some low-functioning public school system. They had limited skills. Their prospects were little to none. You know? And they had this fear for their future and the future of their families. So I felt some empathy for them. And simultaneously, I'm feeling solidarity for all these groups assembling in the area for the Black Lives Matter folks. I mean, 400 years since slavery began and the terror of everything that carried on in those years of slavery and after and up to this day, why wouldn't you feel rage? And the Antifa, the history of the Antifa is interesting. For the last hundred years, they've been, they've been fighting against fascism wherever they can find it. They fought it in Germany in the 30s, in Italy and in Spain, and now they're dedicated to, and you may not like their methods, but they're dedicated. When they see it, they're going to fight it and disrupt it at the root. In the LGBT community, What a legacy of abuse there, almost through all recorded history, 
as far as we have recorded history, that abuse has been, been, been perpetrated. You know, so there's a lot of reasons to be pissed off. You know? So it was kind of surreal. All this was getting, starting to, ready to, to boil over. And so I'm standing there in between, and I'm looking at, the, looking at the guys in the park, and then I'm looking at the folks behind, and it's all kind of slowing down in a, in a kind of altered way. And my heart did, for some moments, was open in both directions. And there was this strange equanimity. I wasn't feeling separation. But that didn't last long. From the east came marching another large group of, I don't know what was there. There were different flags, but there were Nazi flags, American flags, Confederate flags. And also I noticed my fellow clergy people, they were going to do a direct action and stop some of the people from entering the park. It didn't make much sense. The park was already filled, but they locked arms and they were trying to block an entrance to the park. And the the protesters then started throwing them aside. At this point, I started feeling my equanimity slipping away. You know, and in a flash, I, I kind of thought of my, my father and my uncles who'd fought in World War II. What would they think of Nazi flags and American flags marching down the street together? It just was like a little inconceivable. You know? Not to mention the clergy getting roughed up. So that was the flashpoint. Uh, Antifa sprung into action and charged into the Nazis and uh, also tried to help the clergy get out of a tight spot. And the riot began and all the guys that kind of came out of the park and jumped into the fray. <clears throat> My sentiments were not becoming so compassionate or they weren't very compassionate anymore. And there was not equanimity. I could feel myself completely identify with all the counter-protesters behind me. The BLM, the Antifa, the anarchists, the, the LGBT folks, and whoever else was, was involved. So, so where had my compassion gone for these two groups in just a moment? That chasm of separation was full on in me. At that moment, or a few moments later, uh, my partner Latifa tugged on my arm and she said, you remember your promise, and that's when the fighting starts. We need to get out of here. You know, she said, you're too old for this. So... It was the big, just the beginning of a very strange day and, and terrible day. And, I, and in a few, few moments from there, actually, at like, I don't know, was it 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, I was scheduled to lead some meditations because we'd created this place of refuge. And there was a number of them around town uh, located adjacent to the African American Cultural Center, just a few blocks away where people could come in and we'd have meditation and other events and food for people to 
get out of the mayhem. So it was like kind of walking from this chaos over to the pillow, you know. But life is like this. I mean, you've probably had some of those similar experiences on the cushion these days, you know. Chaos, chaos, you know. And then you settle in a little bit. So it certainly became, you know, it was right up in my face, this challenge of bridging separation, how fragile it is. How quickly compassion and equanimity can just dissolve if the conditions are are dire enough. And so how do we learn to, to resist and vigorously resist individuals, groups, systems that we deem are causing suffering and not put those individuals out of our hearts? Creating a deeper us and them creating a greater separation that eventually has to be bridged. That's not so easy. But I've come to see that bridging separation is the fundamental issue. And in the end, if as a species, we can't skillfully, somehow, some way, navigate that, you know, it's just going to result in continued human suffering on a scale that maybe we can't even imagine yet. And to take it a little step further, failure to bridge that felt separation between humankind and the environment will almost assuredly result in another mass extinction. Which really, if you think about the environment, in the end, it kind of dwarfs everything else. It's our nest. But, as Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over, right? What you're practicing, what you're cultivating as you sit here and work is the key to the survivability, the sustainability, and the harmony for all of this creation. And also, your personal happiness. You're cultivating the ability to bridge these separations. So let's take a little look. A few years ago, the New York Times ran a a series of articles they called The Great Divide. They could have called it The Great Separation. And here's a description from from the series. The Great Divide is a series on inequality, the haves, the have nots, and everyone in between in the United States and around the world, and its implications for economics, politics, society and culture, and the environment. The series moderator is Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel laureate in economics, Columbia professor, and a former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors and chief economist for the World Bank. So the Great Divide. It's, it's what the Times is telling us This is the time. We're in the middle of it. And so, yeah, the multiplicity of challenges we face as humans can seem overwhelming. But I think if we think about it a little bit, most of us would agree uh, it's not a matter of the challenges of enough resources. You know? 
It's not a matter of technological know-how. These are challenges of consciousness. We actually have enough natural resources, enough scientific understanding, enough human ingenuity to really take care of 7.3 billion people with dignity. We can do it. And all the issues of inequality, discrimination, exploitation that we suffer and that we see today is really the, the result of these feelings of separation. And it's an illusory separation. There's hopeful signs. You know, it seems like our country now has embarked on a more expanded discussion about race, one of the great, truly great separations in our culture. It's really challenging, and it's really necessary. The incredible wealth of this country is built on two main forces. First, the almost complete genocide of Native peoples. And then second, the introduction of slavery in 1619, which really became the primary economic engine creating wealth in this country. Yes, slavery was the primary economic engine that made the, gave us the power that we have in the world today. And I don't usually recommend books when I'm giving a talk, but I can't help myself. And some of you have probably read this. Uh, it came out about a year ago. And it's called The Half has never been told. Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism by Edward Baptiste. The half has never been told by Edward Baptiste. He's a prophet, Cornell. And it's already become an instant classic. It's being used in economics courses, schools of business, history courses. I have friends that are using it in their teaching. But until we face our history, feel into our history on a deep level, there can be no healing, no full bridging of all the divides we're trying to work with. Truth has not yet completely been told and reconciliation has not begun in earnest. It's going to require a long-term national introspection. South Africa's truth and reconciliation work could be a model. But this can't be just an intellectual exploration. Yeah, this is a really good book and it gives you lots of information into into the depth of how race and economics were wedded in this country. And it can provide some motivation, you know, and and create an intention to do the real work, which is a lot deeper. And that real work relies on the power of your mindfulness, your practice. For the past couple of years, I've been fortunate enough to participate in a white awake group, we call it. And we have a number of them in in Charlottesville now, probably six or seven of them, each with six to eight people in them. And we've been looking at white privilege. We've been looking into the, into the um, uh, 
the history of race and, and the, the, uh, the, the effect of racism on the institutions that we've created in this country, et cetera, and how it affects our communities, et cetera. And so we're, we're challenging ourselves to heighten our awareness of the moment-to-moment -moment separation that we feel, specifically around race, kind of as a template. And then to apply our practice skills and then see what happens, see what we can discover in ourselves, see what we can learn. You know. We're paying attention to race as a template, but the elements of any felt separation really applies across separation of class, gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, religion, disability, anything you can think of. And for me, this is, this is pretty slow going. In fact, just discovering how often I feel the chasm between myself and others, you know, whether it's race or someone's physical form or the religion or the politics or their class, you know, this has really been mind-opening and, and heart-opening and really challenging. My early conditioning into prejudice coming out of my lower class background runs way deeper than I imagined. I mean, all of us have been conditioned by our families and culture. Things have been installed in us and not all of them are pretty. You know, I think back to my father. He poured into me every ethnic and racial slur known to humankind and he even poured it on about his own ethnicity, the Irish. Oh, they're a bunch of drunks, shanty Irish. They're just fighting, they're stupid. You know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm just a kid taking this in. So that on one hand, and on the other hand, here's a guy fought in the war. He was PTSD to the max, reflecting back on it now. Over 500 straight days of combat he was in and the invasion of Africa and Italy. There was, it was a challenging environment to grow up in. But yet, even in him, uh, there was a recognition, and one of the things that he always demanded of me, look, when you see the garbage men come, or the sewer workers, or the linemen, go out there and offer them some water. These guys are working hard. You know, They're good people, and they work hard. Well... <clears throat> A lot of them were African-Americans or there were some Latinos. And then, it's, and then he's all these other ethnic slurs. And I'm like, what's going on? You know? So I'll be purging myself of this dribble little by little, probably for the rest of my life. It's humbling and it's possible. You know? There's so many ways to parse the pie because we've got so many opportunities at every turn. You know, feelings of separation that we feel from one group or another are relentless in us. But my personal experience tells me that we can chip away. This practice helps and it can, it can work some really sweet magic. Even using politicians as an example. Um, 
like many of you, I've had strong feelings of separation from politicians. You know, if you could imagine that, maybe some of you can't. <clears throat> Making them the other. You know? Now, some of the individuals I might separate out might be different than some of yours, but we all know that, that process. But it is possible to cultivate empathy. You know, to use mindfulness to sense into the causes and conditions that might have affected that particular person or politician that way. Kind of learning about their family history a little bit. Just imagining what those conditions are like. Imagining how they were injured psychologically. Causing them to act in such harmful and callous and deceitful ways. I've had success with this the last few presidents, you know, working on it. I, I didn't agree with the last number of presidents. In fact, I never generally agree. But, and I'm working on this current one. It's a bigger challenge. But this growing, you know, growing empathy in ourselves and lessening the feelings of separation doesn't mean that we don't resist and struggle against any individual's policies or systems that we deem as harmful. It is not that at all. We're not laying down. And we all might agree that a bona fide spiritual path, okay, one of the aspects, we, we continually reflect on our thoughts, speech, and actions as to whether they cause harm or not. And if we judge anything we think say or do, is harmful. We try to adjust and not create harm. But what I think needs to be included in a bona fide spiritual practice is also a proactive aspect. The proactive aspect of a spiritual path is that when you see harm, as you deem it to be harm, you try to stop it or do something about it or create an alternative the best that you are able, given conditions in your life. So an expanded a definition of a spiritual practice or a bona fide spiritual practice might be that we both refrain from doing harm and we act to stop harm wherever we see it. And it also means the real hard part that, that despite the struggle that we wage against harmful thinking and actions of others that we don't put them out of our heart. You know, that challenge, that's the razor's edge of a, of a real spiritual practice. You know, so, the, so the instincts of your organism want, wants you to survive. And that partly drives you into deeper separateness to seek haven in your particular tribe. It's only natural. The groups you identify with, it feels comfortable and it's safe. And often we need to do that. Paradoxically, you're also powerfully psychobiologically wired to connect. You know, intimately and personally and even with this, this biosphere of ours. 
There's a lot of harmony that goes on in the world. Look at all the people, and we're mostly in harmony. We're careful with each other. Maybe not to the extent that we're doing this retreat together and really caring for each other, but that's our potential. From Rilke, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I circle around God, around the primordial tower. I've been circling for thousands of years, and I still don't know, am I a falcon, a storm, or a great song? The boundaries dissolving. You can hear that in Rilke's connection with everything. And sometimes it's easy. We, we feel connected and we each have our different ways. You know, where we're just sometimes overtaken, you know, awed. There's an interconnection that just springs up. The bond gets felt viscerally. A sudden awakening occurs. Boundaries dissolve. Each of us have a, has our different pathway, you know. I mean, I love being in my garden. I love running along the, 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 the country roads where I live or being in the woods or when I'm lucky enough to go scuba diving and spending time on a coral reef. I mean, it's just like, boom. There's no separation, you know. But st- standing there in the middle of a riot, there was separation. But we, can, we naturally have these sudden intimacies that just open. And a number of you have talked about your experiences this week already with tears in your eyes. One of my favorite articulations of the practice is uh, that of Shanul, the 12th century Korean Zen master. And his main teaching was this idea of sudden awakening Satori in Zen, juxtaposed with gradual cultivation. He taught, his, he taught his students and kept reminding them that, look, hey, without this gradual cultivation, okay, you may have some of these moments of awakening where you're really unified and connected with everything. But they're going to be infrequent. But with the gradual cultivation, these moments will happen more and more frequently. You know, it's like sudden awakenings are great, are, are great, and they are grace. They're grace whenever they occur. And we can develop a nervous system that's ripe for grace more of the time just by this simple practice. One of my favorite articles in the Great Divide series was by uh, Dan Goldman, and a lot of you know him. He's done a lot of work on emotional intelligence, and he's a, you know, he's a meditator. It's a, a critical part of his life. So he wrote this article. It was called Rich People Just Care Less. It was part of the series. And he writes this. Turning a blind eye, giving someone the cold shoulder, looking down on people, 
seeing right through them. Those metaphors for condescending or dismissive behavior are more than just descriptive. They suggest to a surprising, surprisingly accurate extent the social distance between those with greater power and those with less, a distance that goes beyond the realm of interpersonal interactions and may exacerbate the soaring inequality in the United States. A growing body of recent research shows that people with the most social power pay scant attention to those with little such power. This tuning out has been observed, for instance, with strangers in a mere five-minute get-acquainted session, where the more powerful person shows fewer signals of paying attention, like nodding or laughing. Higher status people are also more likely to express disregard through facial expressions and are more likely to take over the conversation and interrupt or look, look past the other speaker. He goes on, bringing the micropolitics of interpersonal attention to the understanding of social power, researchers are suggesting has implications for public policy. Of course, in any society, social power is relative. Any of us may be higher or lower in a given interaction, and the research shows the effect still prevails. Though the more powerful pay less attention to us than we do to them, in other situ situations, we are relatively higher on the totem pole of status, and we too tend to pay less attention to those a rung or two down. <clears throat> a prerequisite to empathy is simply paying attention to the person in pain. In 2008, social psychologists from the University of Amsterdam and Amsterdam and Cal Berkeley studied pairs of strangers telling one another about difficulties they had been through, like a divorce or a death of a loved one. The researchers found that the differential expressed itself in the playing down of suffering. The more powerful were less compassionate toward the hardships described by the less powerful. You know, as, as an aside note, I might, I might add, uh, you know, the concern, there's lots of writing nowadays that point out that the children of the very wealthy, of course, attend schools where only the wealthy attend. They seldom have jobs or learning experiences that directly expose them to any of the underclass. And through their legacies and connections, they attend the most prestigious colleges with, with other wealthy people, mostly. Of course, there's always a few scholarship people thrown in. Then they assume their place in society of power with a severely lacking empathy quotient. You know? They make the laws, lead the political parties. They help increase the wealth of their families and and others like them. I mean, this isn't new in history. These factors, though, grow the gulf. And historically, when the gulf gets wide enough, there's a rupture. Sometimes the rupture is peaceful. Sometimes it's not peaceful. Goldman goes on. He, he says, uh, Dasher Keltner, a professor at psychology at Berkeley, and uh, Michael Krauss, a professor at uh, Illinois, 
They've done much of the research on social power and attention deficit. Keltner suggests that in general, we focus the most on those we value most. While the wealthy can hire help, those with few material assets are more likely to value their social assets. Like the neighbor who will keep an eye on your child from the time she gets home from school until the time you get home from work. The financial difference ends up creating a behavioral difference. Poor people are better attuned to interpersonal relations with those of the same strata and the more powerful than the rich are because they have to be. Keltner's research finds that the poor compared with the wealthy have keenly attuned interpersonal attention in all directions. In general, those with the most power in society seem to pay particularly little attention to those with the least power. To be sure, high-status people do attend to those of equal rank, but not as well as those of lower status attend to those of equal rank. This has profound implications, Goldman says, for societal behavior and governmental policy. Tuning into the needs and feelings of another is a prerequisite to empathy, which in turn can lead to understanding, concern, and if the circumstances are right, compassionate action. Let's try a little exercise. Settle in, close your eyes, get comfortable. Take a few breaths, some exaggerated breaths. And bring to mind someone who you know or an acquaintance that you consider of higher status than you. Bring this person to mind. Someone of higher status. Get a felt sense of that person. What it's like to be in their field. Imagine them facing you. Okay? You're in close interaction with them. See their face. Really feel their presence. That felt sense of being in the field of this higher status person. Now feel your body. What's your level of attentional energy? Are you giving them full attention? Are you fully with them? Are you attentively leaning into the interaction? Now in this interaction, are there any moments where you might feel some disinterest on their part. Disinterest in you. Does their presence drift maybe a little bit? Might you feel that maybe occasionally they look right through you? 
as if they're wanting to kind of get on with it. What does that feel like? Okay, now let that person go. Still staying, staying in, settled in. Now bring to mind somebody of lesser status than you. Someone that you encounter in your life. Take a moment. Bring that person forward. Feel into that attentional field with you and that person. Are you paying careful attention to them? What's going on in your body? Are you slightly antsy, maybe a little in a hurry? Do some of your thoughts run past them? What's that like, a person of lesser status? Okay. Open your eyes or leave them closed if you wish. So that's just a little example of separation, how it might play out. We've got so many to choose from, different situations. The mindfulness that you practice, the awareness of what's happening when it happens, gives you a choice, gives you a chance. You have a choice and a chance to stay completely at home with the experience of another being, to stay attentive in that field, whether they're higher or lower status. And by recognizing that felt sense of a gulf when it's there, feeling what it's like when you're maybe pulling your attention and empathy away from someone of lesser status or or a person who you feel different from, in that mindful moment, you have a choice. You don't have to disengage. You know, when I find or feel myself or wake to the fact that I'm having a somatic recoil from somebody you know, in my feel, or one of my dad's crazy tapes goes off in my head, um, I know it's time to slow it down. You know, okay, first feel this separation. Maybe there's some contraction. Maybe, maybe the self is starting to solidify itself, to really kind of create that us and them thing. But feel it, know it. And then I can make the choice to really kind of extend my awareness to hang out in this field that maybe is not so comfortable. And I can hang out in that field for a little bit of time and maybe even have some compassion for myself because it's not so easy. But I know it's got to be done. Yeah. 
I didn't ask for these kind of reactions to happen in me. But they're there. I wouldn't choose them. You know? You know? But practicing this in those moments when we feel that separation, we can start feeling comfortable where before we didn't feel so comfortable. And it's just, it's the, it's the most worthy of our efforts and attention. Even in the Satipatthana Sutta, that, that, that sutta that talks about the practice of mindfulness, it's probably the most famous of all the Buddha's suttas. You know, and, it, and it's the instructions you've been given this week. You know, to come to know the movements of your body, you know, your emotions, your thoughts, your moods. And, and connect with them intimately. to experience them changing and changing and changing again, and to accept them all with, a, with grace, with loving tenderness. That's what you've been practicing. Really, to become accepting and comfortable in your own skin. Okay? That's part of the practice. But in this refrain of maybe the Buddha's most important discourse that's most studied and most read more than any other one, the Satipatthana Sutta, there's a refrain that says this, In this way, she abides contemplating the body as a body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. Here, the Buddha is encouraging you to extend your awareness beyond, to include the other. It's part of the practice. And as you're learning, you know, you're learning that this practice is is more than just you coming to an internal peace, an internal peace. It's extending that field. You know, that care and acceptance is extended to the rest of creation is part of the practice. It's an intimacy with all, all of creation. It's bridging separation. This from Pema Chodron. The only reason we don't open our hearts and minds to other people is that they trigger confusion in us that we don't feel brave enough or sane enough to deal with. To the degree that we look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, we feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. So we're working internally, we work externally. This from Black Elk. And while I stood there, I saw more than I can tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shapes of all things in spirit and the shape of all shapes as they must live together like one being. As they must live together as one being. Bridged separation. Connection. So can you see the progression of this practice? Bridging that internal divide. Extending outside to others and to the environment. This from Chief Luther Standing Bear. The old Lakota was wise. He knew that the human heart away from nature becomes hard. He knew that lack of respect for growing living things soon led to lack of respect for humans too. 
I've often been struck by some of the astronauts' comments. You know, they go out into space and they have these, you know, these experiences. This is from uh, Edgar Mitchell. He writes, It was all there suspended in the cosmos on that fragile little sphere. What I experienced was a grand epiphany accompanied by exhilaration, an event I would later refer to in terms that could not be more foreign to my upbringing in West Texas. From that moment on, my life would take a radically different course. What I experienced during that three-day trip home was nothing short of an overwhelming sense of universal connectedness. I actually felt what has been described as an ecstasy of unity. I perceived the universe as in some way conscious. The thought was so large, it seemed inexpressible. And to a large degree, it still is. So Mitchell had that direct experience of separation dissolving. And that, and that informed his life going forward. It would have been interesting to talk to him. He, he died last year to, <clears throat> to ask him if that bridged separation that he felt with the whole planet, that it bridged the separations that maybe he felt, maybe he didn't, race, ethnicity, class, gender orientation, whatever. I, I just wonder that. But when we heal one form of separation, like in our little white awake groups, really focusing on race, it has the capacity to generalize to other forms of separation. Now, Mitchell's Mitchell's experience in Epiphany came out of the extraordinary experience of being an astronaut. And most of you don't have that, that experience. Or though for... 25 million, the Russians will send you up into space and you can have that. But you've got your mindfulness practice. Okay? So tonight I've tried to articulate in different ways the, the way of framing this practice. One facet of the gem of the Dharma. Bridging all the divides the internal disconnect that causes us so much pain, the delusional external divides that creates all this havoc in the world, the divide we feel with nature. And oh my gosh, we have so many years in, in just this one lifetime of conditioned prejudice to work through. But your mindfulness practice can help with this. And it's really the true heart of practice. This is a relational practice. Internally and externally. This isn't just sitting around gazing at your navel. Trying to to find your happy place. When we turn our attention towards the other, a person or some other creature or the environment as a whole and really feel into it from that position of empathy, 
whatever we then say or do is likely to reduce suffering and bridge some or all of the felt separation. We're still in the game. Our species has great potential. The story's not finished. So let's sit for a moment. These words from Walt Whitman. I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine, and the north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.